Dr. Jason Woods here, and we are back for another edition of the ASEP Equal podcast series. We're back in the area of chest pain today, and we're going to be talking about high-sensitivity troponins, where to use them, what they are, how they differ from the conventional troponin measurement, and then where to fit them within your practice at the bedside. Our guests we've had on before, Dr. Frank Peacock is an emergency medicine physician at the Baylor College of Medicine. He is a clinician and a clinical researcher. Robert Christensen from the University of Miami is coming to us from the side of the laboratory scientist. Now, I do want to note that this original lecture was done in a visual format, and so every once in a while you'll hear them describe something that's on the screen. We've tried to eliminate most of those, and if not, you'll hear me jump in with some visual clarification. All right, the first question is for Rob. Can you tell us what high sensitivity means in the context of the high sensitivity cardiac troponin measurement? What I wanted to do was start off with this biomarkers timeline. It goes all the way from way back in 1950 up to really the present day. And what I wanted to emphasize is there's really been two key parts to this whole 65 years or so. And that is when troponin assays first started coming on the scene. And that was back in the early uh, 1990s. And then a, a big issue that's come up in just the last year or so is the availability of high sensitivity assays. Uh, one of those arrows points to 2009 because that's when these updated assays first became available in Europe. And now finally, we're getting them in the U.S. and they're going to have a very positive impact on our practice. Uh, well, certainly there can be no argument that our cardiac troponin is in the center of all guidelines now, whether they be laboratory or whether they be from Europe or from the AHA and the ACCF. Certainly, cardiac troponin is universally accepted as the biomarker that is so essential for making that diagnosis of myocardial infarction. So, cardiac troponin, uh, I'm a bit biased, but I think it's the, uh, I think there's a lot of evidence that it is the best biomarker on the biochemical scene anyway that there is. And what we teach here is that, except for some occasional uh, analytical false positives, that when you see an increase in cardiac troponin, you think heart. Now, that doesn't mean that every time you see an, a cardiac troponin increase, you think myocardial infarction. So it is a, it's an organ-specific uh, biomarker, not a disease-specific biomarker. And so we teach that this is, no matter how hard we've looked for tumors that produce cardiac troponin, that really all the sources have been able to be traced back to the heart. So Rob, just one clarification. Is high sensitivity cardiac troponin measuring a different analyte than the contemporary or traditional troponin measurements? High sensitivity cardiac troponin is not a new analyte. It's the same old cardiac troponin that we've been measuring. The thing that is better is our way of measuring it. So we can just see very, very low levels. So what is high sensitivity cardiac troponin? Here is the definition, okay, as it stands today. And this is an assay that can measure greater than 50% of healthy men and healthy, healthy women above this limited detection. Now, um, Frank will, t will tell us, uh, Dr. Peacock will tell us in a, a few minutes what this limit of detection is. The high sensitivity is also precise. In other words, a very little amount of uncertainty with each of your with each of your measurements. All right. So my next question is for you, Dr. Peacock. We're talking about an assay here that can possibly detect elevations earlier, but I know that there have been some clinicians who are concerned that that might significantly increase the number of positive troponins that you're finding, and that may or may not represent MI. 
Can you tell us how these can help us at the bedside and if we can use them in other diseases or, you know, if we have a elevated troponin and we don't think it's MI, what else do we do with it? The, the, the thing about the high sense troponin, and, and this is really critical, and I see this on the blog spheres all the time, there is people criticize because we don't diagnose more MIs than we used to. And if that's what you think, you got it wrong. The whole point of a high sense troponin is it allows you exclude more people than you could in the past because the low sensory opponent, you can't exclude anything. That's why it takes for hours and hours. The high sensory opponent changed the game. Europe is about a decade ahead of us. And so they've got a lot of experience that we can learn from. This is a 2,500 patient trial where they had a contemporary troponin and then they brought in a high sensory opponent. So it really tells you exactly what to expect when you bring in a high sensory opponent and try to change a system. And just for those that are listening, the article he's talking about is from the European Heart Journal. The lead author is Raphael Twerenbold, and the title is The Impact of High Sensitivity Cardiac Troponin on Coronary Angiography, Cardiac Stress Testing, and Time to Discharge in Suspected Acute Myocardial Infarction. So everybody said, oh, no, we're going to cath all these people who don't need to be cath. Well, that's not how it played out. Before and after the coronary angiographic rate, the PCI intervention rate changed zero. It was identical. So the impact of high sensitive component into a system doesn't change the rate of coronary angiography or intervention. But what it does do is it changes the population of who gets intervened. And you can see here, phase A, 11% of the cats were negative. In the second phase, it was 7%. The rate of triple vessel disease discovered was 44%. That's an absolute increase of 2%. So what happens is you identify the sick people and get rid of the not sick people so they don't get capped at all. That's a clear improvement over what was their established baseline. Everybody was worried there's going to be emergency docs would go crazy and we'd stress test everybody. That didn't happen either. And what actually happens is the risk of stress testing went down, meaning patients didn't even get a stress test because all their testing was negative. They could go home. So there was a 34% reduction in subsequent stress testing following the implementation of a high sensitive opponent. The other question is, well, they stay in the ER for decades now getting tested. Well, that doesn't even make sense, and that's not what happened either. There was an almost hour and a half decrease in the rate of time in the emergency department, a 20% reduction in emergency department length of stay. So that's 15% more patients got treated as outpatients, got booted out of the ER and went home. How about costs? Well, what's it do to costs when you decrease unnecessary procedures and, and ER length of stay? Costs went down. There's 20% reduction in total costs. These are in euros. I don't know how that translates into dollars, but it's not more expensive to implement high sensitive opponent. It actually is a, a uh, cost benefit. And you can see here time and costs, both in ERs that did not implement a high sensitive opponent went up. So it costs more to stay what you've been doing before it actually gets worse. Your length of stay gets worse because we all get more overcrowded every year by about a 5% rate. I want to talk about cut points a bit. If you think of troponin this way, uh, when you have an MI, it goes up like a rocket. There are very, very few things that make troponin levels go up as high and as rapid as an MI. There are things that make your troponin elevated, but not rising like an MI. And that's the key here. And so if you think of that, they have to decide where's the cut point. Well, for all the labs in the world, we use the 95th percentile, except for troponin, we use the 99th percentile, and that's a made-up number. It has nothing to do with physiology. It has to do with the fact that years and years ago, when we were starting to work with troponin, we didn't want to accidentally cause 
people call them MIs when they weren't. We weren't really worried about the rule out years and years ago because we couldn't do it, but we were worried about the rule in and we didn't want patients to be called MI and get capped who didn't need it. And so, but there's no correlation between 99th percentile and bad outcomes. It's a made up number by which we just defined what it was. So that's a challenge because the MI cut point is way higher than the 99th percentile. The 99th percentile is not good. Elevations above the 99th percentile are always associated with increased death rates, but not necessarily increased myocardial infarction. The other thing we use is the level of detection, and that's intuitively how low does your assay go. And it has nothing to do with physiology either. It's just an assay function. And originally, the assays didn't go too low. And now we have better assays that go low, and people report them. Well, the detection level is such and such. That is, is, has as much relevance as the shoes your patient is wearing. It's completely irrelevant. All that matters is it's a number, and it's a low number that's good. And the lower it goes, the better, but there's no physiological relationship between level of detection and outcomes. And the one that I consider the most valuable is the one that I made up called TRD, and that's the real deal. And the real deal is the cut point at which you can be certain your patient will be live and well and perfectly fine. That's not always the case. It's certainly not case the other numbers. Frank, do we have any data that actually talks about health risks that are not related to acute MI with elevations of the troponin? You know, can we show that below the cut point for acute MI, there are still elevations that are meaningful for the long-term health of your patient? This is an analysis done by Martin Fan with a thousand patients who followed him five years. And the article he's talking about here is from Clinical Chemistry 2018 titled Detectable High Sensitivity Cardiac Troponin Within the Population Reference Interval Conveys High Five-Year Cardiovascular Risk, an observational study. And the lead author on that is TAN, T-H-A-N. And what you see there, and if you look at the 99% and the hazard ratio for major adverse cardiac events, Around the 99th percentile, looks pretty much the same at the 98th or the 101 or the 95th and the 105 because that's the bad outcome place. So the troponin T in the United States has a cut point of 19 for the 99th percentile. It's 6.8 where the hazard ratio is 1, 6.8 nanograms per liter. So there is a large chunk from troponin levels up to the 99th that are still bad. Now, this is five-year bad. This is not you call the cardiologist for the cath lab. But this is somebody, if it's your dad and he's got a troponin of 12, you need to worry about him because sometime in the next five years, something bad's going to happen. Well, that is one study. This is another study of 8,000 patients that at the same thing. And the reference for this article is from 2019 in Circulation, titled High Sensitivity Troponin I, an Incidence of Coronary Events, Stroke, Heart Failure, Hospitalization, and Mortality, and the ERIC study. Lead author is Jaya, J-I-A. And what they found, they did is they took a bunch of all these patients who didn't have an MI. These are patients who are in the hospital with a slightly elevated troponin and look at their outcomes over the next five years. So the higher your troponin was, the more likely you were to be diagnosed with coronary heart disease in the next 15 years. And this is ischemic stroke. And it's the same story. The higher your troponin, the more likely you are to have a stroke in the next 15 years. This is atherosclerotic coronary vascular disease. And the higher your troponin, the more likely it is. And this is incident heart failure, and the higher one of the more likely it is, and global coronary vascular disease, so the lump of strokes and heart failure and heart disease all together. And so no matter what happens, the higher your troponin, the more likely you are to be dead in the next 15 years. So it's a, it's a marker that's really important. It is just not an acute event marker. It's a prognostic marker as well. So all you got is a naked troponin. You just got a number. You are not done. 
diagnosis of unstable angina is controversial. Some people say it's going away because if the troponin's not elevated, it didn't have any danger. I don't believe that. I still think that there are two negative troponins and you don't have a patient that necessarily is completely risk-free and the large data shows that. Um, so there are some patients you should clearly keep, and this is from the PEARL trial, which looked at outcomes from two negative troponins and then applying a risk score and, who, and which scores are the best. There's two, heart and EDAX. And EDAX is Emergency Department Acute Coronary Syndrome Study. It's an actual study of looking at patients by probability of an event. Heart score, unfortunately, is more of a risk marker. And the challenge with that is it's got a subjective component in the history. So if you weren't a very good history taker before you use the heart score, you're not going to be very good after. It doesn't change anything. EDAX is much more objective and has been validated prospectively over 30,000 patients in a single study out of New Zealand. But either study, either if you, if you don't use a risk score, you always are worse than any risk score. All the risk scores are better at allowing discharge. And that's the point here is we're talking about sending people home. They are better at discharging patients than uh, you will be if you just guess. Every time there's been a Gestalt study, emergency docs tend to lose that. My next question is actually for Rob. What other issues does a clinician need to worry about besides sort of exactly what the cut points are going to be or how we place this in the context of a score? One thing that the, uh, the field has done is originally the cardiac troponin assays of the very early assays, they were whole numbers, okay? But the problem is, as we moved up, as cardiac troponin assays evolved, they became more and more sensitive. One thing we have to be very cognizant of is that the units here. And so the uh, going forward with high sensitivity assays, focus on that unit. If it's nanogram per liter, then it's a high sensitivity assay. And if it's nanogram per milliliter, then it would be more of a contemporary assay. So just to reiterate, the high sensitivity troponin assays generally report numbers out in nanograms per liter, whereas the contemporary or more traditional assays used nanograms per milliliter. So just be really careful what units you're working with. This question can go to either one of you. How does a high sensitivity troponin affect our evaluation of the delta? There's been some discussion in this arena about whether it should be a percentage change or a an absolute number. And do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I can give a lead into this, and I think Dr. Peacock can give us some more insights. But I think that it's becoming very it's becoming quite clear that the absolute. So what we mean by absolute is the number of nanograms per liter that the value increases from one time to another. The relative increase, can there can be a lot of overlap if you just look at it in terms of uh, percentages. And I, I don't know whether um, Dr. Peacock has uh, further insights on this. But what we're really talking about is the speed and the size of the increase. And, and it is not that other things can't cause rapid elevations of troponin. It's just that nothing is as rapid as an MI. When you take out a whole chunk of the wall, of the, of the heart, your delta, the increase in the troponin level goes up. We, for a while, we tried to use percentages, and unfortunately, that really doesn't work very well in terms of predicting who's going to have MACE. And it looks like the absolute increase is the, the challenge here. But if you look at it from an emergency doc's point of view, I'm not so worried about the positives as the negative. And if that, you have a high sensitivity assay, and it doesn't rise by more than three or four nanograms per liter in the first couple hours, you're probably done. That patient is not having anything that is an MI. They might still have damage. They might have elevated 
troponin because of heart failure, and there's an increased short-term death of that, but they're not having an MI. And that's where the value of the delta is, is for emergency docs trying to exclude an MI. Moving on from that, my last question is, do the same things affect the accuracy of the high-sensitivity assays as the previous troponin assays as far as things that can either falsely elevate or falsely lower the measurement that you're actually getting? Well, one thing I wanted to um, uh, just let the audience know about is that, yes, we're still measuring the same cardiac troponin molecule, which means we are subjected to the same interferences. Uh, in our in our testing, one here it's called microclots. When you get clots forming in your um, uh, in your sample, it can give you false increases. Certainly, biotin has been uh, discovered as a very big interference. And perhaps many of you are asking your patients if they're taking uh, biotin uh, vitamin supplements. Hemolysis, the most common interference that we all see, can either increase or decrease the values. Skeletal muscle disease, this has been a particular problem. Some have noted with cardiac troponin T measurements, even though they're very good assays, that with skeletal muscle regeneration, there have been some reports, some cross-reactivity. And then, of course, autoantibodies, which can interfere, heterophile antibodies that can uh, interfere either by cross-linking the capture and the detection antibodies when none of the analyte is present at all. All right, we are heading into our wrap-up. Do either one of you have any closing thoughts that you want to leave or things that we haven't addressed on? I know there was actually some discussion we didn't get to yet today on should, when the lab is reporting these values, the value come with some additional qualifiers as far as whether this places a patient at high risk or low risk based on an objective score, or should it just report out the the value and nothing else? And I want to address the could we get some lab description around tests at certain levels? I think that's a great idea. Unfortunately, the FDA has uh, decided they can, you're not allowed to report below the LOQ, and the LOQ is defined as the 10% CV. So when a lab test has more than 10% variation, they're not allowed to report it to you. Well, clinically, that would have great value, and I don't agree with the FDA. They make the rules. So until we can get that change, we're somewhat stuck on getting where it would be very clinically helpful. To, to know if someone's got a very low troponin and if it was changing much, and, uh, but until the, the law changes were stuck. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about is the universal definition, and this is important because this is a thing in flux. It's just become the fourth universal definition came out a couple months ago. The first two are the important ones. One, which is a plaque causes a thrombus, which causes an MI. We call that a STEMI, and those are big ones, and that's an EKG diagnosis for the most part, um, but also uh, type uh, type two were everything left over that was a positive troponin under the third universal definition, which was a real problem. And so now the fourth generation, the fourth universal definition has has altered that a bit and says supply demand imbalance unrelated to a thrombus and with ischemia. So that's somebody who's got let's say AFib with a heart rate going 130 for six hours and their troponin rises. That's a supply-demand imbalance. They have some stable coronary artery disease, and, and it's not due to a, a thrombus. It's due to ischemia that is demand-related. So that's how we've now changed So the troponin elevation in the absence of ischemia now is a new verbiage, and that's called myocardial injury. And you can think of that as somebody who's got chemotherapy, and their troponin rises because we're killing their heart, and there's a short-term death rate associated with that, but it's not an MI because there, there is no ischemia involved in that. It's just toxic to the heart. So that's how we've done. We've uh, chopped this up into to two different kinds of what we used to call type two MIs. 
So to summarize here, troponin, you know, it is faster and cheaper and finds more patients with disease for the rule out. And that's a huge win for the emergency physicians. It does not increase more MI diagnoses. It wasn't supposed to do that either. But when you have those patients with slightly elevated troponins or even not slightly elevated, just in the top half of the, the range of below the 99th percentile, you have to consider the underlying physiology. And there is one big caveat here when you get a really low number, it might be too early. So if a patient has an MI and comes to your department half an hour later because they were visiting another patient when it happened, they will never have an elevated troponin. I don't care how good your assay is. And so early presentations are dangerous. You have to put them in the context of most of the trials that have been done. The time the patient presented to the ER was three hours into their MI. So that's sort of the data set we start with. So if you've got 99% negative predictive value at three hours, it doesn't mean you will have that at one hour. So early presentations, be very careful. All right, and that's going to end our discussion for today. Thank you so much to Frank Peacock and Rob Christensen for being with us today. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd. You can find the rest of our ASAP Equal podcast series at the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine website, www.aliem.com, or through the Alien SoundCloud page. Thanks for taking a listen. 